Welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen. This week we'll be looking at issue number 611, August 24th, 1996, £1.50 pence, Planet Rock every Wednesday. Kerrang! has had a bloody revamp this week, so they've uh, completely redesigned the magazine, which for me is ever so slightly annoying because I have all my bits for the podcast laid out and then they go and change it. They haven't really changed too much, thankfully. So they've renamed a couple of things. American News is now US Mail and uh, On Location is now out. And they've added uh, a couple of features, um, different bits. But we'll we'll get to that when we get to that. Um, My sort of reading out of the podcast hasn't really changed too much, if I'm honest. Uh, It just looks a little bit different, which is always a bit um, jarring when you first pick it up. You're like, oh. All looks different. Anyway, not to worry. You don't need to worry about any of this because you're just hearing about the magazine rather than reading the magazine. Um, yeah, let's move on. The cover stars for this week are Shirley Manson, uh, Dexter Holland, and Zach De La Rocha. Red in Special, Garbage, Offspring, Radiance and Machine, Exclusive Interviews, News, Sepultura Date, Metallica Secret Album, Donington, The First Review, Eight Page Monster Pullout. Ash, Irish Blokes Rock LA, Machine Head, Drugs, Aliens and Apricots, Corrosion of Conformity, Chili, Slayer, Nirvana and Dub War. If you're new to this podcast, then welcome. What we do each week is we take a copy of Kerrang! that would have been out this week, but from 1996, so quite a few years ago now. And uh, yes, my job is uh, it's not a job. I do this because I love it. <laughs> my role here is to go through the magazine and just pull out all the good stuff. So I read the interviews reviews, live stuff, try and pull out the funny stuff when I can. That usually comes from the feedback page where all the uh, smelly smelly metalers are complaining because the prodigy are in Kerrang! and they can't believe it and they should piss off to some other magazine like Mixmag. It's all very, it's all very, um, <laughs> it's all very WWF <laughs> on the feedback pages. It's always fun. If you'd like to get in contact with us here at Kerrang! Back Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram, Kerrang! Back Issues, Twitter, Kerrang! Pod, Email kerrangbackissues at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a review, please go over to Apple Music or Spotify. That would be really appreciated. Brilliant. Let's crack on with this week's issue of the magazine. This issue was created with the following stimulants. The monstrous rock fest that was Donington. The Kerrang 15th birthday at Excels in Birmingham. Cheers, Hick. The Oasis Mystic Meg TV ad, new albums from Corrosion and Conformity, White Zombie and your old muckers at Kerrang. Carrot Cake, the very best of Kenneth Williams on video. Fear Factory and Biohazard's one-off London Stormer. Egg and Cheese Sarnies, a sea of beer, a top smart new look, a plethora of celebrity faxes, see next issue. Sean Peake's somewhat underwhelming attempt at a moustache. Anticipating Reading. 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We start this week with news. Nirvana's two surviving members have revealed that they want the band's forthcoming live album from the Muddy Banks of the Wishka to be a tribute to late singer Kurt Cobain. In presenting this record, says former bassist Chris Novoselic, I hope that the ultimate allure of Kurt's and Nirvana's passion are brought to the foreground again, where it should be, crank this record up. Realise the bliss and of the power and passion. Total Nirvana. The 16-track live album is expected to be released by Geffen during October and will cover the legendary Seattle band's career from 1989 to 1994. Nirvana started out as a live band, continues Nova Selic, who compiled this album with former Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl and producer-engineer Andy Wallace. We played around for two years before the release of the Bleach album in June 1989. Live shows were our bread and butter before the phenomenal release of Nevermind. We'd hit the road for months at a time. At the end of a tour, we'd split one or two grand freeways then called a tour a success. The two earliest performances on the record, Breed, then known as Imodium, and Polly, both come from London's Astoria on December 5th, 1989. Nova Selic now fronts Geffen's signee Sweet 75. Grohl, of course, is with the Foo Fighters. Metallica guitarist Kirk Hammett has sensationally revealed to Kerrang that the band's next album will be infinitely heavier than their current album load, which has been criticised by many diehard fans for being too lightweight. Says Hammett, the new record will rock harder than load and it definitely has more of a crunch thing going. Incredibly, Metallica already have the material for the next album in the can and ready for release. They recorded so many songs during the load sessions that Hammett and co secretly made the decision to hold some tracks back for release on another album next year. And this record will, insist Hammett, showcase the heavier side of the band. Hammett, however, vigorously defends the direction the band took with Load, which has already sold more than a million copies in the States alone. A lot of people have been asking us why we're not so intense anymore, he shrugged. And sure, Load obviously isn't as extreme as Master of Puppets or something, but we wanted it to be a certain way. So we deliberately picked songs that fitted well with each other, and it just so happened they weren't as extreme as the others that we recorded. The band are keeping the new songs under wraps at the moment, but news of the next record should delight Metallica fans who are anxious for the band to get back to their heavy roots. Metallica released a new single Hero of the Day through Vertigo on September 2nd. It will be available in a two CD collector's set. CD1 will also have live versions of Overkill and Damage Case, while CD2 has the song Stone Dead Forever, Too Late, Too Late and an early demo of Hero of the Day. Elsewhere on the Metallica front, the band begin their European tour in Vienna on September 6th. Sepultura will follow up their appearance at Donington last weekend with a full-scale live assault on Britain during December. The Brazilian metal crew will be giving fans an early Christmas present when they play the following five shows. Newport Centre December 11th, Manchester Apollo 12th, Glasgow Barrowlands 13th, Wolverhampton Civic Hall 15th and London Brixton Academy 16th. Tickets are on sale now and cost £10. £10, unbelievable. For all venues, except for Brixton Academy, where they are £12. No support band has yet been confirmed for the tour. Rocket from the Crypt stepped in to save a number of abandoned animals after shooting a video for forthcoming single On a Rope in Los Angeles. During the filming, which incorporated cats, dogs and chickens, the ultra-cool San Diego band decided to use the charity Animal Rescue volunteers rather than paying for trained animals from a pricey showbiz agency. The band then donated the money they had saved to the non-profit animal shelter. But after the shoot was finished, 
Various members of the band fell so in love with their feathered and furry co-stars that they decided to adopt some of the animals as pets. Although who took the chickens is being kept a closely guarded secret. On a Rope is released by Elemental Records on September 2nd and the band has to play a special live evening set at Reading Virgin Megastore on August 22nd. The next day, they play the Reading Festival. US Mail, and we start this week with Don K in New York. The Sex Pistols breezed into town last week for a two-night stand at the Roseland, plus an appearance on mega-popular TV show Late Night with David Letterman. So how good were the Pistols? Well, everyone agreed they were playing better than on their only previous US tour almost 20 years ago, even if they were on stage for less than an hour, not exactly full value for a $30 ticket. Meantime, guitarist Steve Jones' other project, Neurotic Outsiders, are receiving healthy attention at the moment. This is the punk band he's formed with Guns N' Roses' Duff McKagan and Matt Sorum plus Duran Duran's John Taylor. And the signs are that this foursome could prove a big attraction during the last few months of the year. Corrosion of Conformity are one band determined to give it their all in Europe. So much so that they cancelled a planned low-key New York date last week, preferring instead to stay up in Raleigh, North Carolina and intensify their rehearsals for the forthcoming UK and European trip supporting Metallica. The tour comes to Britain in early October and the band's new album Wise Blood is due out over your way on September 2nd through Columbia. Sad to hear that Texan trio King's X have been dropped by Atlantic. Sure, they've scored some minor radio hits in recent years, but somehow this never led to serious album sales, and the band themselves seem to grow tired and stagnant under the strain of constant commercial failure. Maybe this changes for the best. King's X played a couple of New York shows last week and there were radically different reports. One eyewitness reckoned they were brilliant, whilst another thought the band were terrible. Finally, let me mark your card about hot new metal band Floodgate, once known as Penalty. That's now their album title. The band feature vocalist guitarist Carl Thomas, whom some of you might remember from his days with Exorder and their Sabbath influence rock with a slight southern twang will have a lot of you drooling. The album is due out during October on Roadrunner. Next up we have Lisa Johnson in LA. The Summerland Tour, headlined by Everclear and also featuring Space Hog's seven-year bitch and Tracy Bonham, has been something of a flop. The organisers overestimated the numbers who'd turn up to see the tour, despite the fact that there's huge interest in Everclear, one of America's hottest bands at the moment. The fans who did turn up generated enormous enthusiasm, but this didn't stop the Summerland tour from being something of a financial disappointment. And once the whole thing had ended, seven-year bitch guitarist Royzin Dunn confirmed their intention to quit the band, although presumably this had nothing to do with the Summerland disappointments. Talking to guitarist, Jennifer Finch recently supported Ash with her new band Lime at the Roxy in Hollywood. Jennifer has just left L7 and in doing so has switched from bass to guitar. Lime are much poppier than L7 although still very much a rock band and judging by the response they received opening for Ash as well as when headlining their own show at the Opium Den a few nights later, they've a big future ahead. By the way, no news yet on whom L7 will hire to replace Finch, but their last album we've heard, The Beauty Process Triple Platinum, will be out next year on Slash London. And finally this week, we join Kevin Roberts in Seattle. Pantera, Blind Melon, The Rolling Stones. What have they all got in common? The answer, amazingly enough, is that past indiscretions with drugs by all the above bands have led to some major American radio stations banning their records from the airwaves. What's happening is that certain stations have launched what is frighteningly termed OD-free weekends, 
when any band who've had a member take a drugs overdose, fatal or otherwise, will find their record struck from radio playlists across the states. This, in turn, could affect record sales for the bands in question, and who knows, could even lead in future to young bands only having songs played on air if they can convince the radio programmers that they're drug free. Now, all of this is designed to spread a positive message to the nation's youth, but it's already led to major inconsistencies. Why, for example, are Pantera's records banned because of vocalist Phil Anselmo's recent brush with drugs, whilst the likes of the Smashing Pumpkins and the Stone Temple Pilots still have their music played? Surely the well-documented problems that former Pumpkins drummer Jimmy Chamberlain and Stone Temple Pilot Scott Wyland have had with drugs should see them excluded. Only in America, as they say. Dave Richards, program director of Chicago radio station WCRX, recently explained the reasons why his station supported such action. Drug abuse is stupid, and I hate to put it in these terms, but I don't feel sorry for people who abuse drugs. They have to take more responsibility for their actions. It sucks that our listeners won't be able to hear any new Nirvana music because Kurt Cobain had a problem with heroin. We're not saying we don't sympathise with the families and fans of these bands and artists. We're just saying that this new heroin fad is stupid. And when a guy like Scott Weiland or Shannon Hoon decides to put that crap in their bodies, everybody suffers. All very laudable. So why is it that Pilots records are still being played during OD3 weekends? And why are Nirvana also still on the OK list? Does the fact that Kurt shot himself rather than dying from a drugs overdose make him a suitable role model for America's youth? It simply doesn't make sense to me. Do you know where you are? All I know is when I was here and I was 17, I was in the middle of the fucking jungle, baby! We now come to a piece in Kerrang! that used to be known as On Location. It's now called Out, Kerrang's Roving Eye. This week, Morat spends the weekend at Top Bikers Fest and Bulldog Bash. If you watched the TV news last week, you'll know that this year's Bulldog Bash at Longmaston's Avon Raceway was marred by a horrific tragedy. On Sunday, August 11th, world-famous stunt rider Eddie Kidd was due to round off the event by jumping the Whitford the drag strip on his bike. Kidd has broken numerous world records and even jumped the Great Wall of China on two wheels. Kidd completed his jump at the Bulldog Bash, but had a difficult uphill landing on the other side. He was thrown over the handlebars of his bike and down a 20-foot bank, suffering serious pelvic and head injuries as a consequence. Kidd was rushed to Longmaston Hospital. At the time of going to press, he is in intensive care, fighting for his life. Crane would like to wish him a full and speedy recovery. In the light of such a tragic event, it's difficult to look back at all the good times that were had over the weekend, but there were some great moments. As has now become tradition at the Bulldog Bash, having tried and failed to find your place, your mates said they'd camp at, and so stuck your flea-ridden tent up in a part of the field you're destined never to find again, your first mission is to get bladder-stretchingly drunk. Mission seriously accomplished. We head over to the drag strip to check out some of the awesome funny cars and drag bikes, all of which pale into insignificance beside the jet car. Jesus, they start this awesome machine up and people literally run towards the noise from all over the site. They then stand and watch open mouth as the flame throwing missile hits 200 miles an hour in less time than it takes to say free large gins please landlord. Brilliant. The Bulldog Bash is usually bathed in glorious sunshine but sadly this year the weather was fairly dire. The racing had to stop every time it pissed down. Drag racing being dangerous enough already without doing it in the wet and this probably led to the more mellow atmosphere. Instead of stumbling around in a drunken haze, there was a lot of gathering together beneath canvas to avoid getting soaked. Some suspicious groaning noises were coming from a couple of tents all weekend. Filthy buggers. Still, the rain did relent long enough for the crowd to soak up some sun. There was even a rainbow for the hippies present. 
and see some more fine racing. Before either checking out R&B legend Nine Below Zero on the main stage or obnoxious biker punk the anti-Nowhere League swearing a lot in the beer tent. That'll be me swearing in the beer tent then. As ever, the Bulldog Bash was so wide and varied that everyone went home with different memories. It could have been the stunt plane that turned you on or it could have been the exotic dancers. And some of the girlies in the audience seemed to be enjoying every moment of skin on the main stage on the Saturday night, judging by the number of shouts of get your shirt off, directed at frontman Never McDonald. But no one there will forget the magnificent firework display. The last spectacular explosion was loud enough to wake little old biddies in the Orkney Isles. So another year, another bulldog bash, another rotten hangover. Here's to the next one. Next up in Kerrang, we come to one of our free cover stars for this week, Pretty Hate Machine. She is the alternative rock sex siren, but garbage pin-up Shirley Manson is wrapped by self-loathing and paralyzing depressions. Paul Rees follows the band to Spain to find out why their super vixen singer hates her own body, petrifies men, and wants to strip bandmate Butch Vig buck naked. The quiet on board this morning's Iberian Airways flight from London Heathrow to Valencia, Spain is broken by a very loud laugh. Heads turn, eyebrows are raised. Ha, hug, hug, ha, ha, ha. Good lord, the ghost of Sid James has plonked itself in business class and is bellowing at a bemused flight attendant who has presumably recommended the stuffed trout on today's a la carte menu. Except the occupant of the window seat five rows down the aisle is not a bald gentleman with a face like a pickled walnut. It's a petite woman with red hair. This is Shirley Manson, lead singer with garbage and filthy chortler extraordinaire. To her right sit Butch Vig, Duke Erickson and Steve Marker, their heads buried in books. In front are a platoon of second division Britpop bands. We're bound for the Benicazine Festival, an annual three-day event staged in the municipal park of a small Spanish seaside town. It features lots of bands you'll have heard of and many you won't. Beef and cornflakes sound especially hopeless. Garbage is second on the bill on the first night. It's like being on a school trip, says Shirley Manson as she boards the coach, which will take us to 40 miles from Valencia Airport to the festival. I've been smiling sweetly at all these bands, but nobody wants to speak to me. Shed 7's coach picks uh, this moment to pull up next to the garbage bus. Four young men from York wave at Shirley Manson. Shirley Manson sticks her tongue out and gives them the finger. Garbage's debut album has just gone platinum in the US. Butch Riggs celebrated by buying a bottle of the finest tequila and sharing several toasts with trip-hop guru Tricky, with whom he's remixing Garbage's next single, The Sublime Milk. The band will spend this summer playing European festivals and doing a great many press conferences, like the one that's going on now in a tent backstage at Benicazine. This is how it works. Garbage sit in a small table facing an excitable gaggle of Spanish journalists and photographers. The journalists ask questions which go on for weeks and which are then translated as So Butch, what was Kurt Cobain like? The photographers crowd around Manson once the conference is over, seemingly engaged in the contest to see who can take the most pictures of her right nostril. Shirley Manson endures being herded around like a prize bull by smiling sweetly at everyone and not giving anybody the finger. The Garbage Men look on like benevolent uncles. Formerly Butch Vig's band, Garbage are now the band fronted by the woman who talks about sex rather a lot, superficially at least. Today, everybody wants to talk to Shirley Manson, to hug her, to have her peck them on the cheek and quite possibly to ask her to elaborate on her 10 commandments of love, which were recently published in US magazine details and contain such knee wobbling rules as a real man gives head. We'll come to Shirley, but first the Garbage Men. An amiable and erudite trio, they spent years playing in shitty bands before becoming producers for Alternative Rock's finest. Having finally cracked it with their own group, the free 30-somethings are enjoying the chance to act like teenagers, slapping on nail varnish and the like, 
I get to drink beer, stay at top hotels, talk to beautiful women, says Vig. It's cool. Butch Vig says cool a lot. A relaxed, initially reserved man, he'll later infuse at length about his American football team, the Green Bay Packers and train spotting. Ericsson is perhaps the most outgoing of the garbage men. Tall and debonair, he's hugely likeable. We'll come to learn that he's also garbage's smoothest operator. By contrast, Marker is quiet, nervy and twitchy when confronted by the English bloke asking daft questions, but gradually reveals a desert, dry sense of humour. He dislikes Arnold Schwarzenegger films intensely. In his wallet, he carries a picture of his wife and a silver dollar coin his wife's grandmother gave her before she passed away. All this is supposed to happen when you're 18, he says, not when you're 37. A lot of people we knew are dead or totally screwed up, so we try and avoid the more obvious pitfalls. We'll have some fun tonight, drink some beer, but we probably won't get arrested. The Garbage Men first saw Shirley Manson in 1994 on MTV. Her band uh, Angelfish had one of their videos screened during the early morning graveyard shift. I like the fact that she could sing low, says Vig. She had a subtle intensity. She's very emotional and opinionated, whereas Steve, Duke and I are a bit more pragmatic. Shirley's kind of the one who strikes the sparks. Following a phone call from Vig, Manson flew to Madison, Wisconsin to join the Garbage Men in their studio. They clicked. My first impression of Shirley was a very weird thing, says Erickson. I felt as if I'd known her in another life. We were just sitting there laughing and carrying on. I was scared to death of her, says Marker, which seems to be the common response for some reason. It turns out to be totally groundless. She's basically a woman who speaks her mind. If you're wearing an ugly shirt, she'll say, take that off, it sucks, which is probably how more people should be in a better world. Garbage are a rare exception for a rock band. They all appear to enjoy each other's company. Shirley Manson says they're like brothers and sister. But there is one further question we must ask the garbage men. Gentlemen, you've been working in close proximity with a woman who has been memorably described as sex on a stick. Has there ever been, well, any sexual tension within the ranks? The question really is, would we shag Shirley, says Vig. Yes, or even ask her on a date. Um, I don't know, says Vig. I can't answer that question. No, says Ericsson. Everybody is really secure in their lives. Sure, she's a beautiful woman, but relationships between band members are a really bad idea, says Marker, and I'd be too scared to ask her. Men are terrified of me, says Shirley Manson with a smile. We're sitting at a table a few steps from the large swimming pool, which is a centerpiece of the Benicazine backstage area. Night has fallen and Shirley is happy. She hates the sun. A few points of interest about Shirley Manson. The last thing she bought with her credit card was a white t-shirt in LA. She looks you straight in the eye when she's talking to you. She cremates poor questions by saying, I don't understand what you mean. She's wickedly entertaining company. And yes, she's very sexy in a way that Pamela Anderson isn't. And she terrifies men. I'm not particularly flirty and I don't think men quite know what to do with a woman who's not flirting with them, she continues, or rejecting them. I'm neither. I could hang with the boys and enjoy their company and I think they find that a little confusing. You know, here's a girl who's enjoying my company, but she doesn't want to fuck me. Oh my God, she must be weird. Men are intimidated by it. In the July edition of Details, Shirley Manson explains exactly how a man should treat a woman, specifically her, among other things. A man must be prepared to let me pee in his belly button and should never ever wear black wife fronts. Splendid stuff, particularly for the genitalia shriveling effect it's had on the global male, a species traditionally terrified at the prospect of receiving sexual instructions from a woman. Definitely, says Shirley. The reaction I've had from women to the article has been phenomenal. They've been like, right on, sister. Men have been the opposite. I think it frightens men for a woman to have carnal knowledge. Too many women I know of put up with unbelievable shit off men. 
Men try and make them feel inferior, whether it's by talking about the size of their breasts or whatever. I think a lot of girls feel very intimidated by it. I don't. If somebody says you're an ugly bitch, then I can deal with it. Shirley Manson was born in Edinburgh 29 years ago. The first record she bought was White Horses, the theme tune to a Czechoslovakian children's TV series about a girl who worked at a stables. The second was David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust. I went to two particularly good comprehensive schools, she recalls. At primary school, I was fairly industrious, a good student. It was once I got to secondary school and the hormones started to freak me out that I lost interest and I got miserable. I hated my body. I hated wearing the little running briefs that you had to put on. Our PE teacher used to slap our thighs in the guise of keeping us under control. But in fact, it was deeply humiliating. Aside from urine and underwear, Shirley talks candidly about being racked by self-loathing and suffering paralyzing depressions as a consequence. In detail, she calls it her ugly duckling syndrome. I really have a problem with my self-image, she says. I think it's partly because I was one of three girls and the other two were much better looking than me. That coupled with the red hair. I was picked on by one girl at secondary school which shattered what was left of my self-esteem. Her name was Louise. She was a really big girl. She must have been about 5 foot 8 even when we were 12. She terrified the living daylights out of me. But my mum used to force me to wear blue Wellington boots to school so it's no wonder. The combined horrors of Big Louise and Blue Wellington Boots ensured that Shirley spent the ensuing three years being fairly miserable. It wasn't until she joined a theatre group, she says, that life picked up. I first got into acting when we put on The Wizard of Oz at school, she says, and then I got encouraged by my drama teacher to join her theatre group. It was a blast, but the self-image thing is something I've battled with all my life. What do you think when you look in the mirror? I still suffer from the ugly duckling syndrome, she says. A German journalist recently said to me, you know, they try to call you a sex symbol, but I've met you and you're nothing special. Ha ha ha. So that immediately keeps your feet firmly planted on the ground. And the more attention you get, the more self-conscious you tend to become. I'm well aware that when people meet you in the flesh, they can be a little disappointed. You can see it in their faces. That can be really hard to deal with. Shirley Manson's first band was Scotland's entry into the 80s new romantic sweepstakes. Later, she joined Goodbye Mr. McKenzie as a backing singer and fronted Angelfish. If Garbage hadn't been such a success, she said she'd have recorded a solo album, which would have slipped into obscurity. She would also never have been called a super vixen. I'm working with some of the best photographers in the world, she shrugs. It's basically a fantasy, an illusion. I don't sit there and look at some of these pictures and think, God, I'm beautiful. I know they've been lit properly, that it's all geared towards making you look good. I have no problem confusing the art from the reality. I probably feel the most at ease on stage because the noise of the music drums all thoughts out of my head. So for an hour, I'm released from myself, and that's a good feeling. Within a couple of hours, Garbage have played the proverbial blinder, or as the band Dictium has it, they've enhanced the trance, whatever that means. In the dressing room after, the Garbage men are hosting what's commonly referred to as a bit of a knees up. Butch Vig is pouring shots of tequila, and Duke Erickson is a man in charge of the bubbly. Erickson will shortly lead the doomed mission to watch the Stone Roses. We will foolishly... Follow him and miss the bus back to the hotel at 5am, but not before we've seen Ericsson in action. Hi, my name's Duke, he will tell many Spanish girls. You have beautiful eyes. And Shirley Manson. Shirley Manson has a headache and will spend the hours before dawn throwing up as a result of taking too many painkillers. But before she leaves, we must ask her what we've already asked the garbage men. Miss Manson, have you ever wanted to uh, shag any of your colleagues? No. There's never been any sexual interplay at all between the members of Garbage. More's the pity, because I'd like to strip them all butt naked. Ha, hug, hug, ha, ha, ha. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! 
Live and the first concert reviewed this week is Ash at the Roxy Los Angeles on Tuesday, August the 6th. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets 5 out of 5. We're here because we love Ash and new English music, but most Americans need new bands shoved into their faces via MTV before they'll accept them. If Bush can do it, there's no reason why Ash can't. We'll see. 19-year-old Chrissy Fink from Los Angeles is rather excited because any minute now her favourite fresh-faced Irish blokes are about to take the stage. This is an important gig for Tim Wheeler & Co. The legendary Roxy is sold out. Goldfinger has just been added to MTV's Choose a Video show, The Box, and outside of New York, LA is the place to impress industry types whose support is crucial in the breaking of America. You can forgive Ash if their nerves are jangling a little. You see, for all the flag-waving Brit rock hype, American bands still piss all over ours. Sorry, but on record and live, we've produced nothing this year to seriously challenge Smashing Pumpkins, the Afghan Wigs, Screaming Trees, etc. Of all our current hopefuls though, Ash are the band most likely to succeed in the States. They're young, they've got MTV looks and they're not beholden to anyone's style of music, bending punk, alt-rock, noise and honeyed pop melodies into an invigorating sound. Plus, They've arrived here as 1977 is about to go platinum at home, which is a surefire way to impress industry bods. The buzz around the Roxy is that Ash Rock, and tonight they do. Big style. The trio bang out Loose Control, Jack Names the Planets and Goldfinger in quick succession and the crowd approve noisily. Everything sounds harder, faster and tighter tonight. The band obviously went up for it, throwing shapes and smiling broadly. In the life setting, Ash blow away all those criticisms that their success is down to producer Owen Morris's magic fingers. The Sonic Youth style feedback freakout in Innocent Smile rather confuses the pop kids, but Angel Intercept, a girl from Mars and the buoyant Celtic swing of Uncle Pat cause much pogo action down the front. Petrol, Get Ready and Kung Fu are blasted out as encores, sealing a truly special performance. Afterwards, US record company types approach Ash's manager Tav to congratulate him on the show. 15-year-old Erin Williams, who owns both 1977 and previous mini-album trailer, and her friend Rachel are delighted to and predict big things for the band stateside. Backstage, Mark and Rick, resplendent in mirrored shades, are also happy. Although following a mad-as-fuck show in San Francisco, they expressed disappointment at tonight's crowd-reserved nature. But this was another Ash triumph, and another step closer to their inevitable international success. With a future this bright, it's no wonder Rick's wearing shades. Next up we have Dearly Beheaded, supported by Black Star and Near Death Experience at Camden Underworld London on Thursday August the 8th. Reviewed by Malcolm Dome, this gets 4 out of 5. We Brits can't compete with bands like Machine Head, right? Wrong. We do have quality up and coming bands, like this bunch, but too few people are interested, so start taking notice, okay? Openers Near Death Experience were last seen supporting Manhole at one of the recent Week on Planet Rock Kerrang shows. Tonight. Their enthusiasm is exhausting yet compelling and they have a firm grip on the need for delivering personality with attitude. After the distinctly contemporary NDE, Blackstar are a somewhat surprising throwback to the early 80s. I don't know what you were expecting but this is rock and roll, proclaims Blackstar frontman Jeff Walker as this amalgam of Carcass and Cathedral, expats roars for a set that brings to mind one time new wave of British heavy metal faves the Tigers of Pantang. Yet for all the retro content of their set, Blackstar are so tuneful and tight that you cannot help but be anything other than charmed. Headliners, dearly beheaded, have been wrongly accused of being nothing more than a glorified thrash band. Tonight, nothing could be further from the truth. Led passionately by vocalist Alex Creamer, the Stockport band once again proved that, given an even break, 
they could be a significant force in the metal world. Combining the unremitting force of modern day metal with the uncontrolled insanity of industrial rhythms, plus no mean use of melody, they come alive on stage. And in songs such as the crucial anthemic We're Your Family Now, they come armed with potentially world-class material. Ignore the mediocrity of their debut album Temptation and see Dearly Beheaded Live, they'll win you over. And next up we have Slayer, live at the Irving Plaza, New York on Tuesday, August the 6th. Reviewed by Don K, this one gets 2 out of 5. I've been to at least 25 Slayer concerts in my life. Some of them are among the best shows I've ever had the pleasure of attending. Great thundering juggernauts of volume and power. On their night, Slayer are the heaviest, meanest act around. So I speak from experience and knowledge when I say that tonight was the worst Slayer show I have ever seen. Clearly, Slayer's problem is musical direction. They need to spend some time thinking about the direction not only of their next album, but also of their entire career. The idea of Undisputed Attitude, their recent punk covers album, has been as well received by their fans as a fart in a sealed room. And they also need to spend more time selecting a new drummer because judging by this performance, ex-testament man John Dette is not equipped to handle the job. That's no disrespect towards Dette, he is in all fairness a fine drummer, but Slayer are a drum-driven band and the standard of those who have sat behind the kit in the past is very high indeed. As capable as he might be, Dette is simply not up to the standard of Dave Lombardo or even Paul Bostaff. When the band opens with Rain in Blood and Dette cannot sustain the double bass that is integral to the song, something is dreadfully awry. But it's not just poor John. The other three all look tired and sound uninspired. The glut of numbers from Undisputed Attitude with their short bursts of speed and minimal variation give the show a certain repetitiveness that infuriates an already restless crowd. In the past, Slayer shows regularly saw fans carried out covered in blood. A spilt beer would have been cause for excitement this evening. As the night wears on, classics like At Dawn They Sleep and Hell Awaits Surface and Disappear Again, along with the occasional surprise like Necrophiliac, a song which the band haven't played for years. However, punk stuff like Abolish Government and Mr. Freeze leave no impression, and neither does more recent original material like Killing Fields and Ditto Head. For the first time ever, I didn't stick around for Angel of Death. Now that's saying something. Next up in Kerrang we have the second of our cover stars for this week. Never mind the dollars. Top bloke Dexter Holland, Offspring, may have sold 8 million copies of their Smash album, but their singer is still an average looking Joe who does his own groceries. In his first interview this year he tells Paul Brannigan why he doesn't ride in limos and shags supermodels. So you're a punk rock kid messing about with your mates in a band playing tiny snot and sawdust clubs around your hometown, flogging a couple of albums here and there, and generally having a laugh. Well, you might as well, it's not like anyone else is going to give a flying fuck. Punk rock is dead, remember? Then you get a couple of tracks onto snowboarding and skateboarding videos, which is pretty cool because that's what all your mates are into anyway. Someone at MTV decides to show your video a couple of times, and a couple more times, and the record starts selling, and selling, and selling, about 8 million copies, or thereabouts, your world goes distinctly pear-shaped and presumably you can never be the same again. You are Dexter Holland, lead singer with Offspring, and I claim my £5. So how the devil are you Brady bloke? Very well, but busy as shit, Dexter Holland says laughing. Yeah, we noticed. You were supposed to call three days ago. So, teehee, what's it like being a rock star now? Man, I really hate it when people use the word star in connection with us, he sighs. You can sense the cringe even down a phone line. We're just four guys from the beach who happened to make a record that people liked. Dexter continues, We were really delighted that anyone else liked it at all. Never mind 8 million people. 
The whole thing has been pretty crazy. The limos, the supermodels, the legions of adoring fans mobbing you in the streets. It must be hell. Yeah, right, he snorts. I don't get recognised much anyway. People think you won't even be able to go to the grocery store once you sell a few records. But it hasn't been like that at all. I guess I'm just an average looking Joe. The whole mentality and idea behind ourselves and our friends in bands like No Effects and Pennywise is just to be a regular guy. I always believed that the kids should be part of our shows and we should share the music with them, rather than being a spectacle for the audience to look up to. We'll always have that connection with people regardless of how many records we sell. But to play devil's advocate for a moment, surely the KISS reunion tour, besides being an amusing wallow in nostalgia, has proved overwhelmingly successful because kids are getting bored with a whole jeans and t-shirt, ordinary bloke shtick. I don't know about that, but KISS were the shit. Man, KISS alive was my first hard rock album and I totally played it to death. They actually asked us to play with them once. Stone Temple Pilots pulled out, but we couldn't do it because we're in the studio. We were totally bummed out by that. Punk rock icon in dodgy glam metal past shocker, eh? Well, to balance my punk rock cred, I can say that the Sex Pistols asked us to tour with them too. No matter what anyone else thinks about the Pistols reunion, they were the punk rock band and I still think they're totally awesome. As a self-confessed ordinary Joe, doesn't it freak you out to have your heroes call you up out of the blue? Fuck yeah, Dexter replies. I mean, the fact that Gene Simmons and Johnny Rotten know that we four dicks from Orange County exist is a real head trip. Have you met any of your heroes in the last couple of years? Yeah, we got to meet Charlie Harper from the UK subs once and... Jesus, did you ever imagine that such heady heights would be within your grasp when you were kicking out the jams in Orange County garages? No way, not in a million years, he says. I mean, Kevin, uh, sorry, Noodles, Offspring's bespectacled guitarist, was still working as a janitor in an elementary school when we were on MTV's Buzzbin, rock and in a very sense role. Kind of funny, isn't it, Dexter Chortles? People think it's easy street when you start to sell records, but it's not as glamorous as it sounds. I hear you bought a nice new house recently. Long pause? Hello? It's nice to be able to support yourself, Dexter begins hesitantly. And it's strange for us to have a home at all after living out of a duffel bag on a tour bus for a year and a half. But I don't know what to say about that. Hey, don't be embarrassed, big guy. Everyone knows you can't sell 8 million records without making money. Longer pause. Yeah, let's talk about something else. Dexter Holland does come across as disturbingly ordinary and untainted by success. Offspring were friends for 10 years before anything started to happen for them and several million record sales doesn't appear to have swelled any heads or affected any personal relationships. But their success has led to one high profile ruck. After years of all punks together matiness, Offspring had a falling out with longtime label Epitaph, which led to them moving to major label Columbia in the US. Obviously this happens all the time in the music business, but it just seems a little stranger in the cosy world of free chords and the truth. From press reports over here, Dexter, the whole thing seemed pretty bitter. What with your old pal Epitaph head honcho Brett Guritz threatening to sue you? It was pretty bitter, yeah, but... But? Well, when we agreed to do this interview, everyone said you guys didn't want to talk about that stuff. Yeah, but we're sneaky like this sometimes. You know, gain your trust, then go for the jugular, that sort of thing. Haha, <laughs> nice try. No, I'd rather not discuss it because we feel that it'll... Uh, become the focus of every story but bitter is about right yeah okay then given that even arch druids of punk like ex-dead kennedy singer jello biafra get beaten up in california for not being punk rock enough isn't your move to columbia going to fuel the sellout accusations dexter sighs deeply everybody gets that sellout thing he says i don't know what to say 
I'm not going to worry about that stuff. We've always done whatever the fuck we wanted to do and nothing has changed in that respect. I've always loved punk rock music for the energy and the attitude, but I really don't subscribe to punk rock ethics because it's impossible to decide what they are. Everyone wants to be more punk rock than the next guy. So you get, I don't eat meat. Well, I don't wear leather either. Then I don't eat meat, wear leather or buy goods from South Africa. Ultimately, you get these guys living on organic farms and shitting in the woods just to prove a point to someone else. It's a no-win situation. I just enjoy the entertainment value of punk now. At present, Offspring are holed up in El Dorado Studio in Los Angeles with producer Dave Jordan, Chains Addiction, Alison Chains, putting the final touches to the long-awaited follow-up to Smash, which is due for release on November 6th. While the US punk explosion shows no signs of fading away just yet, there must be huge pressure on you to deliver another smash. Green Day found it extremely difficult to follow the huge success of Dookie, so how are you coping with the situation? You can think about the pressure until you blow up, Dexter says, but in the end, you just have to do what you always do. If you start worrying about what other people think, then that's not what got you there in the first place. And so what Sonic Delights can we expect this time around? It's pretty similar to Smash actually, he says. We're not one of those bands who decide we're serious artists just because we've sold a few records. We don't want to do an opera album now. It's the same old shit really, mainly fast punk rock with a few different things thrown in. Do you want to give us the exclusive hot poop on the new songs and lyrics? Uh, we don't actually have any titles or lyrics yet. That tends to get done at the last moment. You'd better get a move on, you're playing the Reading Festival this weekend. Yeah, that'll be awesome, he gushes convincingly. We had a brilliant time at Glastonbury and it's always seen that Reading is the biggest and coolest festival in Europe. So any final messages for your devoted British fans, Mr. Down to Earth? Yeah, stop putting us in gagging for a shagging. It's just getting embarrassing now. Feedback. We start this week with Letter of the Week. We want more corn, 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 corn for Kerrang, Kerrang for corn, corn for everyone, corn cobs for all, nice corn, cobs, hobnobs, mmm, nice, sweet, corn, corn flour, corn shower, mmm, refreshing, corn pops, Cheggers plays corn pops, popcorn, metal corn, corny corn, horny corn, corn flakes, dawn breaks, corn, corn, sound your horn, beep, beep, we love corn, please sir, could we have some more corn, the phantom cheese grater and the sandal cruncher from Leeds. Yes, you can have some more corn. Check out our Mega Donington pullout for a full review of the band's headline performance on the Crank stage. And remember, you read about corn first in Kerrang! And we'll continue to bring you the biggest and best corn stories first. I first saw Pantera supporting Megadeth three years ago. After listening to Phil Anselmo ranting at us for not jumping around enough, I thought, what a prat. Recent events have proved me right. I go to gigs to be entertained, not to listen to some bullshit sermon. Oi, Phil, no. Frankie Fetford. Phil Anselmo, what the fuck? Do you fucking know how it fucking feels when you someone leaves you behind? They're in your face one minute and gone the next. Don't let that happen to you, Phil. Think about family, friends and us fans. Your music is therapy. Without you, there is no therapy. Without therapy, there is no cure. Don't use the cheap way out. Fucking hostile Cumbria. I'd just like Phil Anselmo to know how clever we all think he is for being an intravenous drug abuser. He's proved to me that he's really hard. I believe Phil said, I'm not a weakling groping for sympathy. No, you're a fucking tosser groping for press coverage. He also says, I will not die so easily. What a shame, you pathetic twat. Simon Forley, Dark Embrace. 
A huge thank you to Kerrang for giving a fuck about the horrors of drug abuse. You actually gave us the hard facts that many kids out there need to hear. As a Red Hot Chili Peppers fan, I was deeply upset by the death of Chili's guitarist, Hilov Slovak, from a heroin overdose. The use and abuse of hard drugs is something I feel very strongly about. I've seen people in the grip of drug addiction, and until someone gets off their ass and helps these people, they become caught in a vice. Their dependency on life-threatening substances increasing at an alarming rate. Not to mention the feelings of depression and complete worthlessness they experience. What can possibly be good about getting high for a few hours only to feel like shit later on? Drug addiction can happen to anyone. This is a message for anyone out there who has ever felt so screwed up that they attempted to experiment with drugs. Don't. Drugs are not cool. They will not improve your life. They fuck you up. Anthony Kiedis is a lucky bugger. He escaped his addiction and had enough sense to realise that drugs are not the answer to his problems. Hello Slovak was not so lucky. Again, thank you Kareng. I just hope to God that the people who need the advice that you gave will take it to heart. Woodpecker from Mars A few months ago, I saw Smashing Pumpkins at Wembley Arena and my tickets cost £12.50. So how come Pearl Jam tickets cost £15? Considering Pearl Jam have argued with Ticketmaster for so long about the adding on of extra handling fees, you would have thought they would be doing their best to make tickets as cheap as possible. Anonymous Gagging for a shagging. Please print a picture of the gorgeous Mark Lanigan from the Screaming Trees. He's got such a sexy voice. Elaine Plymouth. I'm sick of hearing about little cunts going up to the Mannix and having a go at them for carrying on without Richie. What were they supposed to do when he went missing? Forget they have lives of their own? It was a shitty thing to happen, but I'm glad they carried on. They even had the respect to ask Richie's parents for God's sake. The Manics are making wicked music and doing fucking brilliantly, so anyone who doesn't like it can fuck off. A Kareng fan. I normally ignore letters slagging off my favourite bands, but I'm so pissed off with people knocking the Manics. They won't get another guitarist because Richie was too important. True, he couldn't really play, but he was a brilliant lyricist and was totally beautiful. The Manics are all old friends, and I don't think they will ever be able to get over what Richie has done. So if you can't support them, just leave them alone. Jane Kent. I'm a Christian metal fan, deeply saddened by letters from people calling themselves the Antichrist and the like. I know Satan has a very tight grip on today's metal bands and this must stop. Even though I like bands like Fear Factory, Sepultura and Biohazard for their music, most of their lyrics are evil and bands like Cradle of Filth should be stamped out along with this onslaught of devil worshipping. Saddam Catholic, Scotland. I am getting pissed off with people blaming metal bands for everything. I'm of course reacting to the news that Slayer are being sued for allegedly influencing two lads to murder a young girl. That's bollocks. Those lads killed her because they're twisted and evil, not because of something Slayer said. I'm listening to Slayer now, but it doesn't mean I'm going to kill someone. Please don't get me wrong, I feel sorry for the girl and her parents, but they shouldn't try to give metal bands and fans a bad name. Andy G, Slayer and Terrorvision fan. P.S. Yes. Slayer and Terrorvision. People can enjoy music from one extreme to the other, you know. Ill communication. We now come to a sunburn eight-page pullout on Donington 96. Now, effectively, this is just a live review, which could have gone under the live reviews, but uh, Crane did this eight-page pullout, and obviously Donington being the biggest rock gig of the year, it deserves its own little section. So here we go, the triumph and the tragedy. Donington 96 will be remembered as triumph born out of tragedy. 
The tragic death of 21-year-old Dana Wells, Sepultura manager Gloria Cavalera's eldest son and frontman Max Cavalera's stepson in a car accident in Phoenix on August 16th, forced the couple to fly home immediately using Aussie's incoming plane to leave East Midlands Airport that morning. Rather than cancel Sepultura's appearance, however, the three remaining members of the band, drummer Igor Cavalera, bassist Paolo Jr. and guitarist Andres Kisser chose to play the show out of respect for their fans. Despite the sadness that reverberated throughout the rock community at Sepultura's tragic loss, Donington 96 will live in people's memory due to 13 great bands on two stages, making it one great sunwashed day. As we look back over the festival, with these eight pages, our thoughts and respect go out to Max Gloria and the Sepultura family. On behalf of everyone at Kerrang and all its readers, we wish you strength in this hour of pain. Phil Alexander, Editor. Donington 96, Main Stage, Fear Factory 4Ks. Let's get this fucking party started, a fine statement of intent from the boy Burton Seabell, swiftly followed up by surely one of the most viciously powerful sets ever to grace the Donington stage. Not even the power cut or the frightening prospect of Dino Cazares' short slipping from his sweaty bod could blunt the factory's intense outpourings of pain, rage and industrial despair. We get replica, zero signal, demanufacture, not entirely unfair chance of you fat bastard, much punk rock leaping and hammering of instruments with fists. Fan-fucking-tastic. Paradise Lost, 3Ks. Paradise Lost are no strangers to the mega festival. Every summer they play sprawling European events with names like Rock and Ring and Metal Del Fringe. <laughs> That's really good. Unfortunately, this routine has left singer Nick Holmes with little in the way of stage patter besides come on you fuckers. If I had a pound for every time he says this during the set, I'd have 23 pounds. The pacing is also strange, with the set loaded too heavily with slow epics. The race he wants solemn comes as a relief. Paradise Lost do redeem themselves towards the end with the likes of Hallowed Land and True Belief, but it's not quite the triumph they could have enjoyed. Dog Eat Dog, 5Ks. Yo, Dog Eat Dog are on in the house, on the site and in your face. At every Donington there is a surprise package, and this year it's the Roadrunner signed Rat Pack who win the plaudits. With the sunshine generating a celebratory vibe, Dog Eat Dog's positive grooves and pop mentality are lapped up by all. Having sold close to a million albums, these guys really know how to entertain. Though many old timers would be offended at the notion of a rap based act at Donington, by the time John Connor and friends have bounced out the likes of the smart streamline Getting Live, the exuberant Pull My Finger, breakthrough single No Fronts, which gets the whole field bouncing and the wonderful isms, Doggy Dog have proved that you can teach an old dog new tricks after all. Biohazard, 4Ks. Evan Seinfeld fills up his lungs and bellows. Donington, we're gonna fucking fuck this place up. Oh no you're not pal, not with security standing shoulder to shoulder and right in the faces of the front row to prevent any repeat of the legendary events of 94 when Biohazard incited Donington's first and only stage invasion and then broke some crockery after having the plug pulled on them. They give it their best shot though, opening with a fearsome authority and it's fuck the rules chorus and following that with shades of grey which is as ever awesome. Thankfully, little has changed since that amazing show two years ago and that bulldozing combination of concrete guitars and four-way shouty bits proves just perfect for waking a hot, tired, beer-buzz-gone-late-afternoon crowd out of its torpor. New guitarist Rob Echeverria may not be as visually intimidating as Bobby Hamble, he looks like a college boy jamming with the local roughnecks, but if anything the guitar sound is now crisper and even more lethal. 
and no band works harder to get some kind of reaction out of their crowd, even if today, actually sharing their stage with them is an unrealistic aim. Somehow, the relentless drizzle and grey skies of that show in 94 suited Biohazard's mood better than today's merciless sunshine. That aside though, these particular natives of Where Was It Again have never sounded better. Sepultura, 5Ks. It's not the first time Sepultura have played without singer-guitarist Max Cavalera. Sadly, the reason today is much graver than Max having a stomach bug. Last night, the band heard that Dana, the eldest son of Max's wife, manager Gloria, had died in a car accident. The couple flew back to Arizona using Ozzy Osbourne's private jet. If the remaining Sepultura trio had cancelled their set, everyone would have understood. But with this being a band with soul and guts, and because Dana, one of the coolest 21-year-olds you could meet, would have wanted it, they persevered. The result is an awesome set in many ways, with guitarist Andres Kizer handling vocals. He can't match the weight of Max's voice and he does a fine job considering he's also riffing like a demon at the same time. They still play almost everything you could want, with Biohazard's Evan Seinfeld guesting on Slave New World, a song for which he co-wrote the lyrics. The set climaxes with Ratamahata and the final drum poundings of Kayavas aided by members of Dog Eat Dog, Biohazard and Ozzy's band. Dana would have been proud. Ozzy Osbourne, 3Ks. Accepted wisdom has it that Ozzy Osbourne, seasoned madman, lovable loon, arch entertainer etc is the perfect Donington host. A larger than life legend who will play lots of songs you know and encourage you in a voice that's one part LA speak to one part Mogadon cocktail to go fucking crazy. So we watched a funny video of Ozzy asking around with lots of celebs and tried to forget that the tragically depleted Sepultura have just played a moving and brutal blinder. Ozzy bumbles on in his endearingly hunchback way, informs us that yes, he really does sincerely love us all and starts to sing, and oh dear, this really is awful. The Aussie voice, an unreliable beast at the best of times, today sounds like a moped misfiring. The first half of Aussie's set, which much like its focal point, is tired and stodgy and tuneless. Then, something nearly remarkable happens. Aussie introduces his Black Sabbath meddling, apparently wakes from an hour-long coma, and we're suddenly watching a slick professional and amusing sort of show, which, with the exception of an abominably sluggish Mama I'm Coming Home, is maintained through to the closing Bark at the Moon. I had a blast, screeches Ozzy by way of a farewell. Everyone in the whole place cheers and then quite possibly wonders just how much longer this particular pantomime has left to run. Kiss, 5Ks. It hardly matters that Peter Chris plays like a stiff or that the whole thing reeks of filthy lucre even more than the Sex Pistols reunion. It doesn't even matter that Kiss are a lot closer to the day when they can claim their free bus passes than they probably like, because for one night only, Kiss managed to recreate the sleeve of Alive 2 and it is the greatest rock and roll show on earth. It's a one-off deal. It can't possibly be the same when they tour halls in November. You really should have been here. The much anticipated big production is everything it's been hyped up to be. It had to be, really. If Gene Simmons hadn't spat blood, breathed fire and sung God of Thunder from the lighting rig, we'd have slit his throat. If Ace really hadn't fired rockets out at the end of his guitar, we'd have demanded an instantaneous refund. There's more lights than in the city of Derby and enough explosive material to power up World War 3. We expected all of this. What we didn't dare to hope for was a set list this drop-dead spectacular. Yeah, we knew that the bean-wigged AOR monstrosity that masqueraded this kiss throughout the 80s would be well and truly exercised but we didn't count on six tunes from the yet-to-be-bettered 74 debut, plus long-forgotten chestnuts like Watching You, Let Me Go Rock and Roll, and The Bow Loosening Shock Me. Featuring Ace Freely on lead guitar, he's from Mars, you know. 
It is a stunning show, packed with some of the most ridiculously good rock music ever recorded. We dance, we sing, we jump up and down like fucking idiots. Brilliant. Kerrang stage. Cecil. 4Ks. In theory, they shouldn't have stood a chance. 11.20am, harsh, hot sunshine and a thousand bleary-eyed fans recording from the stench of freshly cooking onions shouldn't have made for an ideal start to Cecil's big day out. But somebody left the script at home. Cecil, with their deft combination of bolshy breakneck noise and sweet, subtle melodies, go down like 10 tons of shit in a rose garden. Armed only with no excuses, my neck and the worst name in history, they make the stodgy buffoons clogging up the main stage bill look like redundant old slop. By the time it comes to a calamitous close with a water-soaked Steve Williams running into the audience and guitarist Ant taking a swing at the mic stand, Cecil have won a thousand new friends. Honeycrack, 3Ks. With hordes of people still flooding in, Honeycrack are the first real dose of excitement for those already here. Their short, punchy songs with dagger-sharp melodies are worth their weight in gold in a small club, and touring with Alanis Morissette has enabled Willie and the Boys to tune their act to different wavelengths. Today, they are hampered by a stupid sound that is balanced precariously at the best of times. Nevertheless, go away, sitting at home, and the insistent good-good feeling are as flamboyant and singable as ever. Willie communicates well with the crowd, but the curiously timed arrival of Fear Factory on the main stage meant that many didn't see out Honeycrack's set. Three colours red, 4Ks. The sun is baking, the alcohol crowd interface is working, and really, we've been waiting a while for something to get worked up about. Enter four men who look as if they're familiar with the term secondhand clothing and who've seemingly all spent the morning with their fingers in an electric socket. Three Colours Red are here to prove that they're the most exciting new band in Britain, which they proceed to do, armed as they are with a large filled filling stash of cunningly chorus pop punk nuggets. This is My Hollywood and Pure are both predictably smart, but it's the unreasonably catchy copper girl and nerve gas which prompt the most hopping up and down in a silly manner audience participation. Result. Everclear, 3Ks. The amazingly Kurt Cobain-like Art Alexicus strides out purposely and tries his very best to pile into Electra Made Me Blind. Nothing happens. Sorry about that, he grinned. My guitar amp just went. It's the most important UK showing yet for the million-selling yanked semi-superstars, and Mr. Gremlin and his buddies have come over to stay this weekend. Electra is abandoned altogether, and even after the miscreant amplifier is replaced, Everclear never really regained their momentum. You make me feel like a whore. Nahalem and Heartspark dollar sign come and go in a squall of screechy guitars and over subtle hooks. And 20 feet either side of the stage, people queue up for ice creams, totally untroubled by the efforts of one of the most exciting newish bands around. A closing cover of ACDC's Sin City, sung hilariously in Bon Scott style by bassist top-nutter Craig Montoya, wakes a few lugubrious bearded types out of their stupor. But of Everclear's own material, only the new single Santa Monica is anywhere close to catchy and they don't even play the bastard. Of course, it's already happened for Everclear stateside and it will happen here too, only not today. Type of negative, 4Ks. Three songs, Peter still mutters something about only having a half hour to slay the second stage masses, but three songs, this will be the much vaunted and long awaited new wave of progressive goth rock which is the talk of coffee houses across the nation then. Or maybe not. Anyway, the Typo Boys look and sound fantastic. Huge, dark, scary men playing huge, dark, scary music. Loudly. The Man Mountain, that is Peter Still, totally dominates the stage, lending the grandiose sweeping theatrics of Typo's three songs the all-important edge of majesty and power. 
That's set list in full then. Christian woman, my girlfriend's girlfriend, and black number one, little miss Scarol. All doomy and mournful resplendent with wonderful stabs of hammer horror keyboards and topped off with swathes of roaring feedback which swirl around the big field like pissed up spectres. On a merry-go-round, swirling a bit too much at times, actually with some of the atmosphere dissipating as the sound drifts in and out with a breeze, but complaints today are pointless. There's the nagging suspicion that Master Steel is in fact ripping the piss with this melodramatic dark art, but hey, we love him anyway. The fact that some Typo fans sacrificed the opportunity to actually watch the band in order to get a good position in the queue for their appearance in the Kareng signing tent afterwards shows just how important and respected these New York Uber Goths are becoming. Doom, glorious doom. Corn, 4Ks. Donington is not renowned for people running or even standing up straight. But after Biohazard finish on the main stage, we all leg it up to the top of the field for the band who were quite rightly voted to headline the Kerrang stage. That band is Corn, and they are awesome. Or at least, they would be awesome if it wasn't so damn quiet. They open with Blind, a weirdly jangling number that suddenly kicks in with a savage bassline like a smack in the teeth and has the crowd going mental, kicking up dust that won't settle till it hits Watford. Sadly though, it's almost inaudible unless you're right in the pit and corner the sort of band who need to be cranked up so loud that it makes your knackers ache and your head throb viciously. That said, the crowd aren't going to be put off by a shit PA. Watching today, you suddenly realise just how popular this band are. Frontman Jonathan Davis croons, whispers and balls his way through a cathartic rage that can't fail to touch anyone who had a shit childhood, while the rest of the band do their best to shake your brain loose with devastating brute force. But this is in no way knucklehead music. It's just a pent-up hatred of all those narrow-minded assholes who try to make your life hell just because you look weird. Clearly, there are a lot of people out there who can identify with that. Highlights today include a version of War's Lowrider played on the bagpipes before Korn pummel into a savage rendition of Shoots and Ladders, and if I'm not mistaken, a couple of new tracks that will put the band on the Donington main stage in no time. But the crunch comes with their last number. Between songs, you can hear Sepultura hit the main stage, but we're still waiting and shouting rather loudly for the classic faggot. The faithful are rewarded with a version of it, which makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end, and your teeth great. This is about as good as it's going to get today. Despite a serious lack of volume, Corn dominate at Donington. Gene who? Singles, and the singles this week are reviewed by Paul Elliott. First single reviewed this week is Santa Monica by Everclear. This gets 4Ks. No doubt that Everclear's Art Alexicus is the people's choice for the new Kurt Cobain. And it's not just because Art's got scraggy bleach blonde hair and a well-documented past drug problem. It's because he writes great songs like Santa Monica. Sure, sounds a bit like Nirvana, but that didn't harm Bush. I Just Want You by Ozzy Osbourne. This gets 2Ks. A typical Aussie ballad makes a very predictable Donington single. Two more slushies make up the additional tracks as Oz goes for the mature market. If you saw Aussie at Donington, you'll know why the man is a rock legend, but this single just sounds like some old bloke crooning. Do 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 EP by Snuff. This gets 3Ks. More gore blimey punk rock silliness from lovable Londoners Snuff. This EP features four of the geezers' favourite soul tunes, including a sax-led semi-punk cover of Soul Limbo, better known as the Beebs Cricket theme tune. The cricket punk rock interface starts here. The Flaming Lips with their single Brainville. This gets 3Ks. Very loose and laid-back acoustic bass rock from Oklahoma's Flaming Lips. 
Brainville is a pretty good little tune, but if you want song-oriented mainstream US rock, you're more likely to buy an R.E.M. album. And James Manic does a much better version of Burt Bacharach's Raindrops Keep Falling On My Head. Sensefield with their single Different Times. This gets 4Ks. It's a pity this just low-key release to coincide with Sensefield's upcoming tour with US indie faith Sparkle Horse because Different Times is a top slice of post-grunge rock that's as good, if not better, than anything on the new Pearl Jam album. For all their critical acclaim, Sensefield seem destined to remain cult heroes of US alt-rock. Mother Mother by Tracy Bonham. This gets 3Ks. She may be Richie Sambora's buddy, but Tracy Bonham is totally mad for it uh, in an Alanis kind of way. This kooky chick rock stuff is big business these days, so it's no surprise to see Bonham notching up US sales of half a million. Check her out at Reading. And the single of the week this week comes from Moby. With his single, That's When I Reach For My Revolver. This gets 4Ks. Like Beck, you never know what Moby is going to sound like from one record to the next. The bald genius's last album, Everything Is Wrong, mixed techno, ambient and industrial rock. This new single from the man's eagerly awaited uh, soon-come Animal Rights LP is full-on rock with a subtly addictive melody. Even better is the ambient throb of additional CD track Sway, while Lovesick is full-on white noise. Whatever next. We now come to the third of our cover stars for this week, Fear of a Black Planet. From the moment Zach De La Rocha first screamed, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, Radiant to the Machine have been the most confrontational band of the 90s. On the eve of their Reading 96 appearance, guitarist Tom Morello tells Murray Engelhart why white America is still terrified of his band. Cops and government don't like rock bands when they're as radically politically and openly confrontational as Radiant to the Machine. This at least is how guitarist Tom Morello explains why a recent Rage gig in the normally peaceful city of Copenhagen, Denmark ended in a riot. It was a police riot, claims Tom. But what exactly does he mean by a police riot? The whole thing was completely provoked and instigated by the local authorities, he alleges. It was at a place where in addition to putting on great rock shows, they also sell some dope. Hmm. This small point may be connected to the police action and subsequent chaos. Tom? It was just an ill-timed police riot, he insists. Ill-timed for the police because they got a lot of resistance from the kids. This is serious fighting talk from one of the friendliest guys in rock, but life in rage is never simple. From the moment they burst out of LA shouting, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, they were marked men, arguably the most controversial band since Public Enemy and Ice-T's cop-killing body count. That's why their Reading 96 show is sure to have an extra edge to it. Rage gigs always do. The body count comparison reminds Tom of an early Rage gig when they supported Ice-T's crew in New York City. Sounds like a recipe for trouble. Funnily enough, it was nothing of the sort. That was one of our very first shows, Tom recalls. There was this Haitian human rights demonstration going on outside, so there was a lot of cops around, and our sound check was kind of overlooking the whole scene. It was right at the time of the whole cop killer frenzy. Ice was standing out there, and all these cops kept coming up to get his autograph. It was just staggering. I wished I'd had a video camera to get that stuff. These cops seemed to be fans, but it didn't surprise him. He was just signing his name. There are, as ever, no laughs to be had on Rage's Evil Empire album. It's pure rap rock aggression and street politics. Morello plays some mind-blowing stuff on the album. Huge riffs, crushing yet funky, and over the riffs he had some weird licks that record the bizarre notes cooked up 
by 60s guitar genius Jimi Hendrix. But life could have been so different for Tom. He once held the pompous title of scheduling secretary for US Senator Alan Cranston. Basically, he coordinated the Senator's daily duties when the old buzzard wasn't in Washington. That job was the last nail in the coffin of my political career, he smiles. Cranston was touted as the leading left-wing senator. For a while, I was answering the phones and one day this woman calls up and says she has a problem because Mexicans were moving into her neighbourhood. She didn't like that idea very much as she was calling her senator to complain about it. I told her that I thought a bigger blight on her community was the presence of ignorant racists rather than people of Mexican descent, to which she took huge offence. I thought I'd done good and stood up for Senator Cranston's beliefs in equality. Couldn't have been more wrong. The rest of the day, I just took a break from all of my superiors on how I was not to express my opinions. I was saying, is she ever going to get a letter from the senator from somebody telling her to fuck off? They couldn't guarantee me that, so I realised that my days in politics were probably numbered. The members of Radiance Machine have always spoken their minds, or found more original methods of making their views clear. No one will forget the infamous Philadelphia incident when the four of them walked on stage during the Lollapalooza gig in the city stark naked, gaffer tape across their mouths, they stood silent and still for 15 minutes in a gesture of protest against the censorship of rock music by the US government. We really didn't know how it was going to go, Tom says. We imagined that jail was in our immediate future. That was really about all that we could count on. But I think it was pretty effective in confronting the censorship issue head on. What about the crowd's reaction? They'd come to see a rage gig and got four blokes with their tackle out. Were they pissed off? Absolutely, he laughs. Because we didn't play, people were pissed off like they should be pissed off. That they're being robbed of their freedoms unless they do something about it. We went back to Philadelphia later and played a free show to make it up to our fans who'd gone to Lollapalooza to see us play rather than see us nude. If censorship is an evil to rage against the machine, then racism is evil above all else. There is, of course, the argument that Chuck Berry would have been the king of rock and roll instead of Elvis Presley had Chuck only been born white. Of mixed racial origin himself, Tom gives a thin smile. You've cut to the heart of the matter regarding race and music in the US, he nods. It's not an issue that I'm precious about because I think that music belongs to everybody. But obviously back music forms were taken up by the white music industry. This process made a lot of cash and essentially it defines what rock and roll is. The white power base finds it very threatening when you've got white middle class teenagers getting into black music through artists like Elvis. People from different racial groups are drawn together by a love of the same music. You have the same kind of thing happening in the US now with hip hop and also bands like us on more of an artistic level. That's why our music is seen as threatening, because it breaks down barriers between different racial and ethnic groups, and it's those barriers which maintain the status quo. Yes, it's pretty heavy right on stuff, but it's in Tom Morello's blood. His father, a Kenyan, was a member of the Mau Mau Guerrilla Group, which helped free its country from British colonial rule. His mother is a founding member of the anti-censorship organisation Parents for Rock and Rap. Evil Empire was vetted by Mar Morello before its release. She's always hungry for tapes so she can pass judgement on it, says Tom. She's a harsh critic, but she seems to like this stuff a lot. It has to be pretty heavy for mum. So Marmorello digs rage, but what does Tom rate as the greatest rock band in the world? The Rolling Stones? Public Enemy? He grins. What makes you think we're not the greatest rock band in the world? Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. Albums and the first album reviewed this week is Wired's Blood by Corrosion of Conformity. Reviewed by Phil Alexander, this one gets 4Ks. Corrosion of Conformity, the name says it all. 
while every two-bit yank rock combo is either serving up instant pot noodle punk, flavor of the month, techno cyber metal or shiny post grunge pop, corrosion and conformity are swimming against the tide of reason. Instead of looking to the 90s for inspiration, Corrosion and Conformity are turning back the clock to the 70s for their musical drive. The 13 tracks on Wire's Blood are littered with tips of the plectrum towards the likes of Finn Lizzy, Early Motorhead, the first six Black Sabbath albums, Southern Fried Heroes like Leonard Skinner, and Molly Hatchet, and even Jimi Hendrix. If on paper it makes COC sound like a bunch of throwbacks, on record it works a treat, coming on like a two-fingered salute to the legion of disposable heroes cluttering up the small screen of MTV America. Then again, you'd expect nothing less from one of the most enduring stateside combos of the last 14 years. The key to COC's triumph this time around is the sheer dent overladen chug of the twin guitars of Woody Weatherman and frontman Pepper Keenan. Picking up where 94's Deliverance left off this time around, Keenan has also incorporated the earthy sense of rhythm which characterised Down, the side project he's run for four years with Pantera's Phil Anselmo and members of Crowbar. Keenan's throaty southern vocal draw also adds to the roots fest that COC whip up. From the biker rock vibes of King of the Rotten to screaming Metallica on Downless Sludge of Man or Ash, COC vary the tempo without ever losing the groove. At times on Wishbone, some tomorrow for instance, there are moments where they even get to swing. Keenan's social commentary ignites the wah wah peddling, long whip, big America and the vintage Sabbath free of the snake has no head, setting up COC as champions of America's underclass. Wiseblood's most adventurous moments come on the proto-grunge of Drowning in a Daydream, the power-fingered monster ballad Redemption City and the menacing snarl of Goodbye Windows. There's the odd instance where COC lose their momentum, the door being a particular non-event of a track, but by the large, those who like heavy music played with a soulful flair, passion and pride will find more than enough meat on the Wiseblood bone. With their support slot, with their buddies Metallica looming, Wiseblood could see COC making new friends among the Metallicambers. Get there early with an open mind and a six pack. Next up we have Neurotic Outsiders by Neurotic Outsiders. This one is reviewed by Mike Peake and this gets 3Ks. Four star players, each arguably worth a million quid, playing together in a band called Neurotic Outsiders, a sort of rock and roll fantasy football league without the annoying distraction of the twatchish uh, Skinner and Badil. They shoot, they score, it's an own goal and Neurotic Outsiders are relegated to the Sunday League. Given the collective talent of the Outsiders' four protagonists, Guns N' Roses bassist and drummer Duff McKagan and Matt Sorum, Sex Pistols Steve Jones and John Duran Duran Taylor, it's fair to say that rather more is expected of them than this scintillatingly average debut album. Yes, we anticipate a lot from four rather rowdy blokes who have between them helped shape the sounds of the 70s and 80s and we want their raucous fuck you noise to leave us battered and bleeding and craving crack cocaine. But instead of huge charging punk rock songs, we get well-produced muscular riffs wrapped around solid tight drumming and courtesy of Steve Jones, some of the most ridiculously bad vocals you've ever heard in your life. Sadly, Jones, sensibly known as the guitarist in the Sex Pistols, hogs the mic for nearly all of the 12 songs on Neurotic Outsiders. And when he wobbles, cack like O Angelina, Queen of Misdemeanor, it's time to reach for the bread knife. Ironically, Duff McKagan's few vocal contributions are actually pretty good. Quickly, the album and Jones's vocals in particular start to grate, and high points like Jerk, with its bollocks to the lot of you macho chorus and the punchy hypnotic union are overshadowed by the plethora of mediocre plodage on offer here. 
And by the time last track six feet under is on, you almost wish you were. Competent, proficient, calculated, anything but exciting or innovative. Neurotic Outsiders is a sound of can't be asked complacency, unable and unwilling to dabble in anything approaching either new or adventurous. But perhaps we expect too much. Stick Linford Christie, Ian Botham, Sally Gunnell and Duncan Goodhue in the same room and it's doubtful that you've got yourself a killer volleyball team. The young ones were the foremost famous students of all time, but they were shy at exams. To Duff and Matt, we say thanks lads, but get the fuck on with the next Guns N' Roses album. To Steve Jones, a hearty pat on the back, a nod of reverence, a knowing wink and a better luck next time. And to John Taylor, well, we blame all this on him anyway. We never did like Duran Duran. And finally this week, we have four albums reviewed by Sepultura. Um, this review is by Jason Arnott. So we get Morbid Visions, which gets 2Ks, Schizophrenia, which gets 4Ks, Beneath the Remains 5Ks and Arise 3Ks. Roots Indeed. These are cut price reissues of Sepultura's first four albums, two of which will come as a surprise to anyone thinking Beneath the Remains was the band's debut offering. Morbid Visions was Sepultura's first full-length album, issued in 1986, and includes bonus tracks from 85's Bestial Devastation EP, recorded for a split disc with fellow Brazilians Overdose. Both sessions sound rougher than Pat Butcher looks without makeup. A decade on, they are history, but little more. Schizophrenia, however, is a different kettle of piranha. Guitarist Andreas Kisser had added a certain melodic sensibility on joining, although this didn't stop tracks like Escape to the Void shredding heads. A fine piece of fuggery, schizophrenia showed strains of maturity among the madness. Beneath the remains, Sepultura's first LP for Roadrunner Records saw this all come to fruition. The arrangements were stronger, with songs twisting and turning like electric eels, developing a unique sound for pretty much the first time. Beneath the Remains sits proudly alongside Slayer's Rain in Blood and Metallica's Master of Puppets in Thrash Metal's Big League. The sole problem with Beneath was that Sepultura had to follow it up. Arise was their formulaic 1991 attempt and they'll admit it fell short of the mark. This was partly due to the album's rushed genesis. Still, the opening title track is a knockout and Dead and Brown Excels boasts one of the best militaristic riffs the Seps have put their names to. Thankfully, Sepultura went on to record two awesome albums and everyone lived horribly ever after. Charts and the number one album this week is Everything Must Go Manic Street Preachers. Number one in the singles charts is Ratamahata Sepultura and number one in the indie LPs charts is Play Games Dog Eat Dog. There are no longer top fives from famous people so all we get this week is the readers top 10. This is because Kerrang has redone the charts and it all looks slightly different. So the readers top 10 this week comes from Yoko H of London. Their chart begins one, anything by Baby Chaos, two, reprise the verb, three, redline Fu Manchu, four, that's why Dream Grinder, five, revealing Symptom Cecil, six, kiss my enemy, apes, pigs and spacemen, seven, south end understand, eight, descend feeder, nine, tribal dum dum, and ten, Jimmy's fantasy by Red Cross. Next week in Kerrang Back Issues, Terrorvision, Pearl Jam, Skunk Nancy, Machine Head, Garbage Hole, and a cast of thousands celebrate 15 years of Kerrang, a special 15th birthday issue. Meet Metallica on their UK tour. Win a personal CD player plus prong, type of negative corrosion conformity, Fear Factory, Biohazard, Ministry, Foo Fighters, White Zombie, Rancid and Paradise Lost. Blimey. It was a good episode this week. I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, there's some, um, some really good stuff in there. Anyway, we'll be back next Wednesday as usual. I look forward to talking to you all then.
Bye for now.